Hello, and welcome back to Podcasting as Praxis. I'm James, and joining me this week are Xander, yeah. Jamie, Great. and David. Hello. So, we're pretty sick of quarantine by now, and so we decided we'd do an episode on the MCU. You guys doing okay in your uh, coronavirus hellscape? Well, I'm pretty sure I can say, safely say without uh, any sort of exaggeration or hyperbole that the worst thing to happen to humanity this century is the fishing minigame in Stardew Valley. Don't fucking hell. That one, that is a deep cut that strikes close to home. <laughs> Can I just say for a record, fuck the bunny and fuck his eggs? <laughs> anyway. Uh, so yes, we've got, we've got a lot of aggression to get out, as you can tell. We're going a little bit cabin fever mad, and so we've decided to do a podcast this time on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where we're going to be giving you... Well, I can't say they're hot takes, or lukewarm takes, or anything in between, but they're definitely takes... So before we get to them, before we get to whatever the hell it is that Jamie and David have cooked up in their diseased minds, uh, what do you guys actually think of the Marvel movies? Yeah, they're all right. I, I think they're really good, like. Yeah, I mean, it's a mixed bag. I mean, a super mixed bag. Uh, but broadly, I think it's sort of creatively pretty decent. It's, it's better than it has to be, you know? I think better than it has been to be is a pretty good way to describe it, to be honest. Because, mm. like, I'll confess, I like I'm quite happy to watch a Marvel film. I've like there have been bad Marvel films, but I seem to have had the luck of never actually seeing one. I've not seen <laughs> Dark World, for instance. Yeah, I mean, I think the bad ones were all a while ago. They they settled into a formula that works, or at least works for me, mm. um, a few years back, and so I'm I just I generally like love them really you know yeah. what i mean They're... and what are we holding to be the bad ones because you mentioned the dark world and i think that's just it's more a movie you can't really have any feelings about whatsoever i mean i think i've seen it twice and it's, um, it's like I've, no impression on me whatsoever i've i've seen it uh, uh probably once maybe twice i don't know it it, it doesn't leave a last the only impression mm. it really leaves is why the fuck would you hire christopher eccleston and then <laughs> have him act in a made-up language I, yeah, so you can't even tell. Do you know what I mean? I didn't it know it was him. I didn't know Zach Levy was it either. Yeah, it, it's like they could literally have had anyone dressed up in that makeup and like doing a stupid voice that you can't actually act or emote in. Mm. Do you know I, what I mean? But they paid for Christopher Eccleston for some reason. <laughs> it was just baffling. They keep smuggling Nathan remind... Fillion into them, but I think that's sort of a running joke rather than weirdness. I think it's just yeah, yeah, famous it, for Nathan Fillion. He's in the couple of the, the Guardians of the Galaxy because right, yeah. he's he's friends with the director. Mm. It's like you're saying about them misusing Christopher Eccleston, and that kind of reminds me of like you know off topic, but Bethesda when they made Oblivion, they made a big thing about oh, oh we've got Patrick Stewart yeah. in and Patrick Stewart and oh, we... Sean Bean as well. Oh, Do shit, not they, get yeah, me exactly. fucking started on Bethesda <laughs> and voice actors because <laughs> it drives me up the fucking wall. Like they must spend a fucking fortune. On getting these big name like a list a list of Hollywood stars to come in and fucking like do their voice acting, and then the director is literally the, the only direction they give them is literally read from card. <laughs> well, actually, it's here's just... the thing. Here's the thing. Patrick Stewart said that the role he did for Oblivion was the best prepared role he's ever received because they gave him a fucking bible worth of information on the septums and his motivation and all this kind of shit. But then he's literally in it for the tutorial, and that's it. He's gone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like. Fallout 3, where they have um, the fuck Taken dude. Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson, thank and you. And the Taken dude, not not Schindler's List dude. He's not that anymore. No, he's, he's the Taken dude. 
He's, uh, that, that's just how culture works now. That's how culture works. He's the avatar of right-wing dad nightmares now, yeah, isn't he? That... If you if you let your daughter out of the house, she'll be abducted by swarthy Europeans. <laughs> you just have to use CIA training to get her back. Just kickstarted the middle-aged man with gun genre. Yeah, but um, they they get him in for Fallout Three, and there's there's an incredible bit where you get a choice early on because. Bethesda are all about the deep sort of like uh, philosophical choices mm. between good and evil. You get a choice yeah. to either like blow up a town because a, a rich person wants you to or not blow up a town. And that's like the choice. And if you blow up the town later on when you meet uh, Liam Neeson, who's your dad, and he asks you if you blew up the town and you tell him you did, he, he says in the flattest like intonation possible, you are my son and I love you, but what you did was wrong. We'll talk about this later and then dies in the next scene so that he doesn't have to actually talk about it with you. And it's just, why would you pay Liam Neeson's wages to have him just not like emote at all? Do you know what I mean? It's 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 baffling. It's the same with, um, I played I played the beta of Elder Scrolls Online and Michael Gambon is in that. <laughs> And he sounds like he is dying inside with every line he reads. It's just incredible. Like you've never heard a man plan to fire his agent with every word. <laughs> so, like as I think we've established, we actually like. I like the Marvel films. I think they're perfectly good popcorn. They're better than they have to be. Mm. Um, if if you say hey, do you want to stick this on to kill some time? I'm like, sure, I'm down for it. And if some friends are like, oh, we want to go out and, and do an event, an event we're going to go out to do is we're all going to go to the cinema and we're going to see, like, you know, um, as Guardians of a Galaxy or whatever. I'm down for that. that. That is cool. But that's not to say they're not without content. They're not without some degree of substance. And as with everything in life, what you make of that content is down to you. So we've prepared some takes. Now, I don't think, Xander, you don't have a take prepared for this, do you? Uh, not an overarching take. I, I, I have micro takes, but uh, yeah, not no over the overarching thing. Maybe not so much beyond that. There's sort of a there's a sort of lack of substance when you go to a certain depth. Oh, okay. I mean, um, I, I should I should full disclosure. I don't have an I don't have a take on the, the whole thing. Um, I'm planning to just spend the the entire podcast like sniping at DC nerds. <laughs> And uh, and or Martin Scorsese, if the mood takes me. Now, is this Martin Scorsese right? Is that because Martin Scorsese said that he thought Marvel films and superhero films in general weren't really good films or something like I that? I think he said they yeah, weren't because, cinema. Yeah, he said that because, right, and you'll never convince me otherwise, Marvel wouldn't give him the de-aging tech that they use in their films. <laughs> and so he had to use that horrible waxwork effect for the Irishman. Oh, God. And full disclosure, I haven't seen The Irishman, but I have seen The Polar Express twice, so I think I get the gist of it. <laughs> Holy shit! Wow! God damn, Jamie, you're on fire tonight. Um, yeah, it's not... Like, I have seen The Irishman, and I'm pretty sure that his use of the de-aging tech is, like, the, the version he uses is intentional. It adds something specific to it. But you know what? Your take <laughs> on it is funnier, so that's canon from now on for the podcast. Glad I could help. And so speaking of canon, right, we'll start we'll start with David then and we'll we'll go from there. So David, what is your take? What is your what is your commentary on the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Ease us into this. Right. I had a lot of characters. As we know, it's a massive fucking franchise, right? Was it twenty films? Uh ah. that ballpark, I think it's like twenty five or so. Oh, for fuck's yeah, I thought it was closer to like twenty five, twenty six by now. 
God damn has well. n- Twi- literally none something. of us have opened the wiki page no no I, that's the amount of research that i've done on this this has all been half remembered so um nerds there's, embrace there's this 23 23 that was close enough so yeah exactly exactly halfway between our both of our <laughs> guesses so yeah right so loads of characters that i could pick out to lampoon the liberal ideas which they stand for we've got the hulk who represents the danger of progress <laughs> fuck about with too much with stuff we haven't tried before and bad things could happen there's Captain America, who's the implicit purity of patriotism, who could also have stopped 9-11 when he went back in time, but didn't, so he effectively did 9-11. <laughs> <laughs> Although Spider-Man, um, a walking example for boomers to point at for why millennials should just listen to them, because bad things happen when they don't. I also toyed with a take on Thor, or Black Panther maybe, and something to do with the monarchy or a need to respect traditional institutions, or how Ant-Man clearly represents small business owners or maybe the higher more women cops character of captain marvel or kamala marvel if you like hold on sorry right i've got to i'm with you on the kamala as like uh you know uh, captain marvel <laughs> is clearly like about this four liberal feminist empowerment i'm totally on yes. board but wind back one ant-man about small business owners i'm sorry yes. you need to unpack this one a bit you've, you've set my brain on fire ant-man can be very small <laughs> It's one of the main things about him. Yeah, you've okay. you cracked the fucking cord there. Clearly what I'm learning from this is not to dig too deeply. Carry Effectively, on, yeah, yeah. Keep this at surface level, because that's where I've kept it. Um, Doctor Strange represents white dudes discovering alternate medicine, and Pepper Potts <laughs> represents <laughs> yeah, yeah. goop. If you remember back to the last cultural, air quotes cultural, episode we did in Star Wars, we spent a fair bit of time talking about the hero's journey as a narrative tool. It's an effective uh-huh. template that can be used in part a narrative. So I thought I'd try and use that framework to draw attention to one particular character's neoliberal journey across the Marvel Cinematic Universe and how they're truly a modern liberal's hero. That character is Tony Stark. Okay. So the first step in the hero's journey is the call to adventure. Though in the, the, the real world that the MCU takes place in, that's not something that happens to everyone and it's not very realistic. So what kind of call to adventure is something that could definitely happen to absolutely any of us it's of course taking over the family business the grandest adventure of them all tony takes on the legacy of his dad a powerful and successful man it's not a hero's journey without supernatural aid though and as we all know tony stark doesn't have supernatural aid in becoming iron man except he does he has money and capital the most supernatural of all forces in the world now, to really push it through on a great journey worthy of a hero, the character needs to break through a threshold, something that wouldn't be possible to most. And this threshold often has like a guardian, which must be beaten to get through it. The guardian mm-hmm. in this case is that which any capitalist would try to defeat, the free market. And he beats this by effectively privatising the defence industry and creating a monopoly on it. The ne- literally says that in the yeah, second film, he does, doesn't he? It? it actually says that. The next step of the hero's journey drops us into like challenges and temptations. So Tony's nothing but temptations. Like if you watch him early on, like all he has is he's womanizing, he's drinking, he, he does what the fuck he likes. Um, that's because he basically has the self-control and self-critical facilities of a small child. So we'll take it as read that it's rich people problems that are his kind of challenges and temptations. Yeah, like like fucking his secretary, for example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, he did some sort of Howard Hughes thing in the second one as well, but which they completely dropped. He's very much 
rich people problems like at all times. It's kind of it's kind of hard. It's almost impressive actually the way that the the films get you to empathise with them in a lot of times because really you, if it was anyone else you'd be like fuck off. That's all it is. Rich people problems until we hit New York when Thanos' forces under Loki attack. Thousands are killed. Parts of New York are left in ruins after large modes of transport are flew into buildings, etc., etc., which brings us to the abyss. So in the hero's journey, the abyss is where a character falls to the lowest point, effectively has like a kind of death and rebirth thing going on, because they're so harshly affected by an event or a series of events that it changes their motivations fundamentally. The revelation for Tony is that he's fallible and imperfect, which for any billionaire is is impossible to fathom. Um, and this leads to his transformation. The transformation is the, the transformation from happy go lucky individualist who just so happens to be infinitely rich and owns a cool suit of armor into an authoritarian worldwide protector. Um, which is where we shift off of the standard hero's journey because just one abyss isn't enough in a modern neoliberal story. So we've got to go there twice. The snap happens and it breaks Tony completely. He gives up, goes, full, fuck you, got mine, and saunters off to the countryside to just live in peace and just forgetting about the fact that half the population is dead. That's until his friends all come back, and then again he goes through the transformation process, and this lets him move into the final stage of the journey, the final stage being atonement. Tony manages to achieve atonement through one simple act, magically snapping his fingers and having everything just be the way it was, it isn't obviously everyone remembers what happened, the aftershocks of it all still happened or lived with, but it's okay. The important thing is that things can really go back to the way they used to be if you don't look too hard. Mission accomplished. In the final stage, the return in which our hero would normally return to their roots, they go back changed in a way that they're perceived differently. And for Tony that comes from his death, because he's not powerful anymore, he's not in charge anymore. It might have been seen as a bit of a dick by most, but we've seen what we could have been dealing with instead. So actually, he's not that bad. Tony Stark is George W. Bush. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, he, is... he follows in his father's footsteps. He's a money dickhead. He beats the marketplace. Maybe, maybe not of the actual monetary marketplace, but perhaps the marketplace of ideas. He faces a bunch of temptations to say more money for us, fuck you, and caves to every one of them. Something bad happens in New York, he becomes an authoritarian shithead, declares mission accomplished, and now liberals love him because at least he's not Thanos Trump. He's not Trump. And he has an alcohol problem, just like George W. Bush. There you go. Tony Stark is yeah. George Bush. Changed my mind. No, that's, that's pretty sound, right? That is, that is actually pretty solid, I've got to say, David. Like, uh, in terms of taking apart a character to expose the kind of political like undertones that belie them, that's a pretty one-for-one one in many ways. The only thing you're missing is, like, who is Dick Cheney in this scenario? Then? I mean, it'd be too easy to say War Machine, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, no, I mean, like, for, for one... for one, it's Nick Fury, isn't it? Nick Fury is Dick Cheney. They've uh. even got the same syllables in their name. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, Dick... Cheney Fury. It's literally the same. That works. God damn. Can't believe Stan Lee seen all this coming. Even Stan Lee could have stopped 9-11. Okay, that one needs a bit of unpacking. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the same way that Captain America did 9-11 because he didn't stop it, if Stan Lee could predict George W. Bush 
and Dick Cheney, then he could have predicted 9-11 and done something about it. I suppose. Actually, I mean, that's, got to be... that's the whole right here, isn't it, that I've not actually dealt with? Because we all know George Bush did 9-11 and Tony Stark didn't do his 9-11, so that's where it falls apart. Ah, shit, yeah, there's always a problem mm. with these things. But yeah, that's my take. That's that's my take on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or at least one part of it, because I tried to do an overarching thing like I did with the Star Wars one, and it was it was too much. There's too many fucking films, there's too much shit going on. I couldn't do it. But up to this point, it, it is basically the arc of Sony Titans. So it's kind of where the series began, because I, I, think, I think Hulk came out first, but Iron Man was what, like, first one they really iron man was the first like successful one yeah Mm. iron man was the first one the hulk was was it uh a few months later i i I tested both the the games for both of them and and uh got free cinema series for both of them that way but i i I can never separate them yeah iron man was first they're only um, a few months um, apart i think and they are kind of of a piece come to think of it actually i have never seen the hulk no, I, I I don't think it, I have. It's been kind of cut away, but obviously because um, Bike Club guy got cut, it, it got switched out. Um, oh god, yeah. that's bad. But um, they Edward left Norton. a lot of plot threads hanging from that because they sort of set up uh, the leader character being in a sequel, which subsequently didn't get made because there's a whole rights issue there. If it sounds like it's even more complicated than the Spider-Man one. Uh, yeah, I think we've changed the character. They just decided to make Hulk a secondary Avengers character instead of like somebody who's been leading his own films. Yeah, it was it was probably a rights issue, but Edward Norton apparently wanted too much creative control yeah. or something. Yeah, he said or, doesn't sound and, fun and to or, work with. And or wouldn't come back for sequels. Mm. Weirdly, Edward Norton is... Um, I don't know if you've ever noticed the phenomenon that certain actors have certain... like things like certain skills that they corner right so like tom uh-huh. cruise is the only actor that looks good running <laughs> brad pitt's the only person that can actually eat on camera that sort of thing huh. edward norton is weirdly specific to doing like characters that have multiple personalities because huh. of the hulk he was in fight club and he was in that thing with richard gear where he plays the the guy that did the murders but like isn't actually didn't actually do the murders because it was his alternate personality or something i can't remember the name of it do you know i didn't expect to get any actual cogent like observation out of this whatsoever <laughs> but that's actually entirely true you're right tom cruise like you know think of all the other heroes and they all look like liam neeson climbing a fence and taking 17 <laughs> oh god i only saw that recently that's amazing yeah it is there's what, like 35 cuts in, in the space of like a two second vault over a fence like I think that's a real reason they have to like retire Marvel characters and rotate them out because if it just kept going, you'd end up with a geriatric uh, Robert Downey Jr. like being literally held aloft by his iron suit, like going through ridiculous contortions to try and look like he's having serious big mano a mano fights. Well, that particular one would work because it's just a special effect. What you might say is Robert Downey Senior. <laughs> oh, uh, Oh, man. So, like, you guys mentioned having micro-takes. Do you have any you want to kick in? Uh, um, okay. Yeah. Uh, we mentioned Iron Man 2 briefly. Um, Elon Musk had a cameo on that, so I'm uh, sure if you go back and look, he, everything that goes wrong from that point on in the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is probably his fault. <laughs> Checks out. 
As I recall, Iron Man's in a restaurant somewhere and he sees Elon Musk and says something about they're working on a project together. And I'm sure, pretty sure it's the root cause of like Thanos and the Infinity Stones. <laughs> it turns out it's what, what, what is that? Um, Ultron, I think it is. Age of Ultron, yes, right? Yes, the best bad guy. The best bad guy. That's like, do you mean that sincerely or ironically? I'm curious. No, just just because it's because uh, it's James Spader. Because uh, I don't know if, if if you've seen the video. Uh, I'm sure it's Red Letter Media done it, and it's just um, scenes from Age of Ultron. But they've taken Robert California from the US office, all his dialogue, and put it over, and it's just Ultron being really weird about sex stuff. It's fucking. It's, <laughs> it's also weird seeing the the pre effect version where it's just James Spader and you know body glove with ping pong balls on him uh that must have made it harder to to act against that than just just against the air yeah edge vault on edge vault on is so weird because it's it's completely forgettable mm. but james spader is really good yeah, yeah it's mostly memorable for, for things like oh for god's sake when he's being beaten up by the hulk which is just so absurd and just out of nowhere <laughs> it's it was yeah. some, some weird creative decisions in that one the first two Avengers, the first two Avengers films aren't great. Um, I suppose not. No, I think I think as a culture, by by the time uh, Marvel's the Avengers or Avengers Assemble or whatever the fuck they called it over here, depends on the territory. By the time that rolled around, as a culture, we were just sick of Joss Whedon's shit. <laughs> Checks out mm. again. No, no bad takes given. Man, like. Well, first of all, I know once I'm done this podcast tonight, what I'm going to be looking up on YouTube because those uh, edits sound amazing. But, like, second of all, I don't know. Like, when we talk about Marvel villains, there's been a whole fucking bunch of them. Because by de- by definition, like, superhero films have to have, like, one per kind of film, essentially. Mm-hmm. And um, honest to God, I couldn't remember. I've seen it, but I couldn't tell you anything about, about Ultron. I really couldn't. That's not stuck in mind. Um, the only one that stuck in my mind was Thanos, which I'm going to be talking about later. Like, oh, and uh, and Killmonger from yeah. Black Panther, mm. who was objectively correct. Yes, yeah. I mean, they they have you selling them short. They have had some really good villains. Um, I mean, it varies wildly. Like uh, Jeff Bridges in the first Iron Man, he was really was good, really was, good. Yeah, yeah. that was, a, that was yeah. a performance as much as anything. I think that a lot of that was in how. Iron Man one was made, and I think they went away from it quite quickly. Where it was mostly here's the here's the beginning and end of this scene. Just do the dialogue that gets you there, however you want. And it's, yeah. it's just him and Robert Downey, Downey Jr. Back, uh, bouncing back and forth, and, and you come out with these really um, raw, spontaneous sounding responses where he actually gets flustered and falls over himself because he's just so annoyed at someone and things like that. Yeah, and then from that point on, the Iron Man films are just kind of all over the place in terms of villains. Iron Man 2, Mickey Rourke is having a, the time of his life. Mm, yeah. With that <laughs> he's role. Yeah, his career, and, um, middle of his career renaissance there. But. And um, Sam, what's his name? Pass. Rockwell. Sam Rockwell mm. is uh, is always entertaining. Yeah, he was he originally auditioned to be Tony Stark and then sort of went on from there to end up being... Yeah, they're both really entertaining, but the film just doesn't really do much. No, it just kind of like sort of spins in circles. It really it really does seem like just some stuff that happens. Yeah, Iron Man 3 um 
is is a good film. I really yeah. like Iron Man. Yeah, I, I, I sort of didn't like it so much at the time, and I've seen it again and found myself enjoying it a lot more. I mean, it's a Shane Black film, so mm. obviously I'm I'm I was like inevitably going to love that. But the villains are kind of weird there as mm. well, like very weird. Yeah, but I I really liked what they did with Mandarin. Mm. Yeah, they're all good actors and they're all like doing good roles, but it just it's sort of there's too much smoke and mirrors and none of them really sort of. Like if I asked you to sort of like name, you know what I mean. If you just ask someone on the spot, name the vi- the villain in Iron Man three, they'd sort of like fumble around as to who it really was. Yeah. Do you know? Actually, I've just realised something. Um, Iron Man three is like that is the absolute crystallization of David's of David's like synthesis of Iron Man and George W. Bush being the same person because. Yeah. In Iron Man 3, the villain is some shady Middle Eastern Al-Qaeda-esque organization that heavily hinges on racist tropes, right? But when you get down into it, when this confrontation starts to happen, you discover that the villain is actually, this this, this Middle Eastern kind of villain is actually just a construct of a series of war industrialists in the United States that's designed to enrich them. And if that isn't the most Halliburton shit ever, and the most kind of U.S. war machine shit ever. I don't know what is, honestly. Yeah. And Tony even had a hand in its creation, which is feeds straight yeah. back into that. Yeah, I'm not like David pay dirt seriously. Like, I think we should just give our Twitter handles and leave. <laughs> <laughs> did they, yeah, um, I mean, like, did Barbara um, Bush ever try and like peddle out health products? I don't think Barbara Bush ever steamed her, her vagina, and no. I'm not. I'm not going to do any research into that. No, no, probably best not to. Yeah, but I mean, the rest of the villains, like Thor, the villain is is Loki, isn't it? Sort of. Yeah, Tom Hilson. Um, but I I barely remember anything about the first Thor film or the second Thor film. Mm. That the first, the first Thor film, I've watched it recently because a friend wanted to rewatch it, and um, like the character of Thor. It's just completely forgettable. Everything that happens around him, completely forgettable. The only good shit in the first Thor film is Tom Hiddleston playing Loki. He gets actual drama in it. Like, he actually acts. He actually, he brings something to it. And he chews the scenery in just the right ways. And it works because of Tom Hiddleston wringing something out of this fucking stone he'd been handed. And clearly they noticed that and decided, right, okay, he's going to be our villain for later on, essentially. Yeah. Um, but everything else about that first film is garbage. It's, it's totally awful. The only pathos is Tom Hiddleston realising, wait a minute, I'm adopted? Kind of, you know, shit going down. Yeah, I mean, Thor Ragnarok being the absolute masterpiece that it was, mm, I yeah. think shocked everybody, didn't it? Yeah, I think the first him, two Thor films were just so, like, dull. Yeah, I think they realised they just couldn't continue with that trajectory. They had the characters. Hemsworth had improved a lot at this point, so they should keep making films with him. And I think they just, well, we'll just take it in another direction uh and you know it's, it's something that's happened in the comics as well you take something that's you know terrestrial or something and then you make it cosmic set it out into space and sort of t- recontextualize it it's kind of the same thing i think like what's happened with the marvel films generally is um like society goes through stages of wanting stuff that's like sincere and how it expresses itself it takes itself very seriously particularly when the idea is somewhat like it's it, not exactly new or fresh, but refreshing. It's like it's come back into vogue. And I think the early films kind of tread that line a bit. Hmm. But after a point, it's like the fantasy starts to strain a bit, at which point 
they need films where the actors kind of turn to a camera and give a wink and go, yeah, you know, you're in on a joke, right? And so I see Thor Ragnarok is kind of making that transition right from the opening when he's doing the slow spinning around on the chain. It's like, okay, this isn't serious. We can we can get over the hurdle of it being like a fantasy because it's clearly, it's telling us it's all a kind of joke. It's humorous. It's, yeah. it's not really meant to be taken like directly as a, as a real thing in itself. It's not worthy of, of that kind of attention. No, I think realistically what Ragnarok was having to do, I think it was forced to do this, um, was play itself as silly, funny and enjoyable from the start because they were going to drop Jeff Goldblum in halfway through it. And if you've not set the tone yeah. for Jeff Goldblum, it's not going to go well at all. Yeah, it makes sense. My take for Thor Ragnarok is that the moment where he returns to Asgard and Loki is pretending to be Odin and he sees him coming and says, oh shit, is the absolute highlight, the absolute like high point of Anthony Hopkins' career. Like he's never done anything anywhere near as entertaining as those two words. It is pretty perfect. It, uh, apparently, Waititi said, "Okay, but the the tomorrow's scene you're going to be playing, uh, it's actually going to be Loki playing your character." Okay, so he comes into to to work the next day wearing blue eyeliner. <laughs> <laughs> amazing just amazing like uh strange like a side fact film do you know the first draft they had of it and they actually filmed this uh when they find odin he's like a fucking um dumpster diving like you know homeless person oh. in yeah no it's, it's on youtube yeah. uh, he's a dumpster diving homeless person in new york and they have a little bit where like four looks at loki and loki says oh, well, I, I took his memory, but I didn't do this to him. Um, and, but mysteriously, they cut that scene. They decided that tonally it didn't work. Which is why the, the new scene is just on a square of grass somewhere, which could be literally anywhere. Like, don't get me wrong, that, that scene, the, the, the initial draft they did, it had issues because it's a little bit on the nose setting up stuff for later. Mm. But um, at the same time, I think the real reason they cut it is because they're like, oh man, you know, Ixney on the whole class politics thing, yeah. man. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, oh, I'm 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 currently looking at the uh, the list of cinema, Marvel Cinematic Universe films in like divided by the different phases that they did. Yeah, and the first phase um, was very uh, very hit or miss. Um, it's the first phase was Iron Man one and two, The Incredible Hulk, Thor, Captain America: The First Avenger, and The Avengers. Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, of those, Iron Man I think really stands up. Yeah, that's, that's uh, a I haven't seen. Film. I, I, I haven't like seen Hulk the Incredible well. Hulk. Hmm. I haven't seen it. Um, and Iron Man two and Thor, eh, the Avengers is, eh, as well. And all I remember of Captain America: The First Avenger is when we watched that. I made a point of repeating Mr. Anderson after everything Hugo <laughs> Weaving said. <laughs> because he was just literally playing Agent Smith as a Nazi. Like, so I haven't seen the, the whole thing of Captain America, the first Avenger, because after a certain point, I'm like, I, I can't, I'm done. Like, this is just too, far too much America first, do kind of stuff. Even though yeah, they kind of did a pretty good, they did a pretty good job of soft pedaling it. But that is the substance of the film, and uh, right from the the training stuff and all the rest of it. Um, like, okay, so here's the thing that actually bugs me most about that film, and it's really small and minor. 
but it speaks volumes in its silence, so to speak. So they have this bit where they bring all the troops around and they're all running and they arrive at a flagpole, which is greased up. And they say that whoever can get the flag, the flag from the top of the pole gets a ride back in the truck, right? Now, this is a real thing they do. They actually do this. It's a tradition on more than one kind of army, navy, and other bases. The Marines are big on this one as well in the US kind of, you know, armed services. So, of course, like the whole scrum, apart from Captain America, um, they all go at the pole trying to climb up it, fail, and, you know, the, the drill sergeant calls them off and sends them all running. But then uh, Captain America just stands there and doesn't run off. And he's like, hey, I told you to get running. And he walks over to the pole, takes the pin out the bottom, puts the pole down so the flag hits the ground, takes the flag from the top of the pole, puts the pole back up and clips it back together, then jumps in the back of the truck and, and just drives off with the, you know, staff sergeant giving him like a, hmm, yeah, I'm impressed kind of look, right? Everything about that is complete and utter garbage. Yeah, wouldn't, because wouldn't they shoot him for letting the flag touch the ground or something? That, like that. is the first thing I was going to say, yes. <laughs> that is desecration of the flag, and they take that sit ridiculously seriously in the armed services and armed forces, because they have to, because it's all about the abolition of individual identity, which is key because if, let's say, if, let's say he stops a pole so it doesn't hit the ground and the flag doesn't touch the ground. Even so, if he'd done that, they would have ordered a code, a code red on him that evening sort of thing for pulling that shit. And there's no way in hell he'd have let him get on that fucking truck. He would have been bitched out by the drill sergeant, to, uh, told you, think this is funny, private motherfucker? And then he'd have given the entire group like five extra miles to run or something like this for fucking around with the program. Because the point, the whole point in military training is not to show your individuality, not to show your ability to kind of like think like that. That's not what it's about. It's to, it's to break you down of your individuality and turn you into a tool who follows orders. For anything else, it's officer training, which is explicitly not what that is about. And ever since I saw that, the fantasy of it has really gnawed at me because what that shows you is that everything people admire in Captain America, you know, he's he's for real America, he does the right thing, he doesn't just follow orders, as comes before in like Civil War later on. It's all a complete and utter fantasy because the American military is the polar opposite of everything Captain America is trained and, and shown as being. All the way up to like, you know, they throw a dud grenade and he hurls himself on and all, just complete horseshit. And it tells you volumes that if they want to make the symbol of American military might and American patriotism, they have to essentially completely fictionalize everything about the real institutions and its effect on people drives me absolutely insane that's why i had to turn it off i was like i can't i can't watch this you would have turned it off anyway at the point where they were all back at the barracks and they started playing soggy biscuit so it's probably better that they handled but, it the way that they did rather than go for realism yeah they probably don't call it soggy biscuit in america though they probably call it the old kentucky fuckaroo or something <laughs> like that the old gravy so, cake like, I'm astonished at you guys. Do you not understand where Limp Biscuit gets its name from? Ah. Oh. Yeah, but I'm not going to let that ruin a joke. <laughs> All right, fuck me then. Okay, sure, fine. That's the first oh. time I've fought in Limp Biscuit in about 15 years. Yeah. Partly like it's 1999. <laughs> I mean, break stuff is the theme of the American military, so I suppose we're on topic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Captain America as a character is, is very weird because... He's just kind of when in the one film where he's like essentially himself in in his own time period, he's just incredibly great. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Once he, once he comes forward in time, I mean, he's a lot less annoying in the Avengers, but once he's in like Winter Soldier and Civil War, he's just great. 
Do you know what I mean? Like once he's once he doesn't trust, like it sets up a sets up a sort of like a lie that America was was once great. You know what I mean? And yeah, and modern America is not living up to the high standards that the the predecessors had set. But if you put that aside, he's he's much like more ex- interesting and like admirable as a character. Once you get like to Winter Soldier and, and onwards, where he, he he's deeply distrustful of the uh, the American way of doing things in the modern world. Well, it's like he he always works as a character out of time, and I think a lot of their casting choices and their ideas on how they were going to film it essentially rotated around that. So, of course, he's not going to work in his origin film. It's not like you know, it's not like Wonder Woman. Uh, the DC film where Wonder Woman works because she's a fish out of water in her own time. And then you kind of carry that forward. Instead with Captain America, it's, oh, you know, there was this this glorious civilization, these great heights of valor in the Second World War, interesting, mm-hmm. that we have since fallen from. Uh, but Captain America keeps the flame of true patriotism and service alive in his heart sort of thing, um, which is the most fash fucking thing ever. And definitely, like... When I, you know, we'll talk a little bit later because I want to give a take on Infinity War, Thanos, and Captain America that I think kind of ties that together. But just this idea of having this return to a golden age or this this fall from grace that we must restore uh, is itself like part of the fascist era narrative in you know in its most base form. So Captain America as a, as a character is deeply sus from the very get go. Yeah, you see, you mentioned Wonder Woman there, and I haven't seen Wonder Woman. For one very specific reason. I heard it was good, and I thought if I watch it and it is good, it might make me want to watch Justice League. <laughs> <laughs> Dodge the bill of air, mate. I saw it in a cinema. Like, So this is off topic. Um, I mean, I don't know. Here's the thing, right? The DC Universe on film is kind of shit. Mm. And we couldn't actually... I don't think we could squeeze a whole episode out of the DC Universe, right? But all I will say is that of the ones I've seen, and I've been forced, note, forced to watch a bunch of them, Wonder Woman was pretty good for two thirds of it. And then the last third just degenerated into, oh, a big explosion, stompy fight with big, like, mean monster kind of garbage at the end. Um, and it's very, like, it's a palpable change in a way that, like, at least the MCU, there's a proper subtext with most of their villains in one way or another. Most explicit in stuff like uh, Black Panther. Um, and maybe, maybe arguably like the first Iron Man and things like that. There's, there's a real subtext to what's going on. So the characters aren't just characters. They're, they're about something in some way or another. And it might be deeply problematic stuff, as I think we kind of are touching on a bit, but at least they're about that. In the, in the DC universe, the characters are not really about anything. Mm. They're just like, no, I, I, I mean, I, I will, I will die on this hill. For the most part. I don't part, think they actually. For the most part, I agree with you. But. Is the um is is the monster at the end of uh Wonder Woman is it a setup for another film? Ah, uh, not really. It's do you want me to spoil it? I mean, I I, I should have seen it by was. now, so yeah. Go ahead. Okay, so spoilers and you play some music or whatever. There's the monster at the end of the first Wonder Woman, the great villain, is actually uh, Ares, God of War. It's it's him. He's behind everything. And he uh, the, the great twist is that actually he's been masquerading as this British politician who was arguing for peace. All right. I didn't realise Emperor Palpatine was in that film. <laughs> Man, right, okay. I was, I was half sh- expecting it to, 
to be like, oh, she's, you know, she's doing Wonder Woman shit and it's all like, you know, in, in the World War One, is it? Yeah. Yeah, and she's fucking around in the past and then and then suddenly like a giant robot from space turns up because it's <laughs> actually a setup for like some future fi- cuz that was the big problem with DC the DC films was they were trying like Marvel basically got the MCU rolling by doing a bunch of I mean as we've just discussed m- like massively average films and one really good one going into the first Avengers film and DC was like, well, we'll do a Superman film that's dreadful, and then we'll do a Batman versus Superman film that's even worse, and then we'll do Justice League, and everything is just to set up other stuff, and it's just, it's just absolute horseshit. Well, it's set up Aquaman, so who's to say if it's good or bad? I haven't seen Aquaman either no, uh, for the same the same reason. <laughs> it's like it might be good, and then I would, then I might want to watch Justice I, League. I'm pretty sure it's not good. I think it's it's I think it's good. It might be enjoyable in the way that Venom was enjoyable. And I can't hand on heart recommends anyone see Venom. I don't know, right? Venom is an interesting film because it's like so. Venom and the Joker are almost a pair in a way. Like I'm talking cinema for a second because Venom is this like this actor who only took the role because he wanted to do this very specific character take, and this just happened to be a vehicle where he could do it. And so the scenes where he's getting to do his great dramatic, I am, you know, split personality kind of drama, quite good. Mm. Like, actually, it, it works. And that carries the film. Supposedly a lot of that got cut. There's like an hour's worth of that. Yeah, no, I, like, um, he did tons of it. And then they took the highlights, essentially. So it's like, you know, it's a it's an actor is doing like a, a passion project, right? And then you look at Joker, and it's not an actor doing a passion project. It's just a pretty good script with a phenomenal actor who gives it his all. And that is what carries it, essentially. And again, it turns on like an inner psychological drama. None of the rest of the the DC films kind of work like this at all. Like in any way, shape or form. They don't actually have like a drama, an inner drama that things turn on. And so the actors don't really have much to grapple with. Because I mean, like, I mean, fuck. You can see what actors do when they bring their passions. Because apparently the Witcher TV sort of series on Netflix that they've done mm. um, Henry Carvel apparently now this might just be marketing bullshit and if it is turns out later then okay I've, I've bought it but it seems like he genuinely actually really enjoys the series and put yeah. a lot of work into it oh. um, Dead and like up until that sorry no Deadpool's the same yeah 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 well yeah. I, I was I was working around to that because again Ryan Reynolds is like oh I just fucking love Deadpool and he's been wanting to do it forever and he's got a like a real like desire to do it and do it right so those are the things that I think kind of bring out what you can get from the DC universe. And then there's Wonder Woman, which works mainly because I think they've got a pretty good script for a large part of it. But then, you know, at some point, clearly they're like, oh, well, we need to return to formula. There has to be a big fight at the end. And so they, they kind of fuck it up kind of that way. The DC um, stuff, um, the DC stuff is generally, you can, you can largely sort of uh, divide it into like, before and after Zack Snyder leaves. Yeah. So, like, Man of Steel is... It's sort of interesting until the last, like, 45 minutes that feels like an eternity of just CGI people knocking each other through buildings. And and what is and, and also what is the stupidest fucking moment in cinema history, as far as I'm concerned. Because he spends, on. like, 45 minutes punching Zod through various skyscrapers and, like, massacring yep. thousands of people in, like, in his own personal 9-11. <laughs> And then yep. they end up in a train station and he's got he's got Zod in a headlock and Zod starts doing his laser eyes along the wall, creeping towards a, a like a nuclear family who are standing like cowering in terror. <laughs> and like 
you know, like, and it's it's he's issuing Superman with that like classic ultimatum of oh, you'll have to break your own rule and kill me now before I laser these like this innocent family, and Superman like you know like goes like and breaks his neck in like anguish, and it's like just put your fucking hand over his eyes, you Superman, you dipshit. <laughs> he sh- yeah. Superman shaves with his laser vision. It's entirely fine. Yeah. It's like, do you know what I mean? It's the dumbest fucking thing imaginable. But as far as Zack Snyder's concerned, because Zack Snyder is like, just, you know what I mean? He is uh, perpetually Ayn Randy. And so his entire thing is that you can't be a Superman or a hero if you're not prepared to kill the Untermensch. So Superman has to kill Zod, but it's okay because he was forced to do it by the most like ludicrous convoluted yeah. circumstances imaginable you could just tell you could just turn his head the other way or cover his eyes or tell the family to fucking move do you know what i mean there's like a million different solutions to that problem that are immediately apparent but instead we have to like have superman give out an anguished cry and do a murder or it might transpire that his mum has the same name as zod's mum and yeah yeah i haven't i haven't actually watched batman versus superman but i have learned that particular twist through <laughs> cultural osmosis and like, I mean, it is like, it is just, he's just attempting to outdo himself really, isn't he? <laughs> for uh, for Batman versus Superman, I was watching it with mates and we got to like the desert bit where Batman's like having a dream and I just went, guys, I'm done. I'll catch you later. And someone else was like, yep, yeah, I'm done too. And like the two of us left and left the rest of them to it. So, which sounds like a dick move, right? But bear, bear in mind, the next time we all met up, everyone else went, oh God, you guys made the right move. And I feel vindicated in knowing that we missed absolutely nothing but worth watching. Doesn't Batman kill that. about 50 people over the course of that film? Pretty much. It's it's ludicrous. It's garbage. And it's like, you know, the, the whole Superman scene you're talking about is basically zero dark 30, but we're going to do it in comic book style, essentially. Like, oh, there's a tipping time bomb. There's a ticking time bomb. And we've got to we've got to get the information from the villain or achieve it's our the, objective. Um, but the cost is too the, high. It's the Lee Hurst. What if a terrorist strapped a baby, uh, your, your, bomb, uh, your baby to a bomb thing, isn't it? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. And it's like... Uh, I mean, the thing is, they don't, these, these films, they don't have, like, real subtext anyway. The thing that makes the Marvel films work as propaganda, and, and, like, I'm, you know, straight down the barrel to anyone listening to this, I say they're propaganda, and I will justify that. Um, the thing that makes them work is they've got a degree of subtlety to them. Like, people can just take in the surface symbols, and, like, it, the rest of it is all implicit. Whereas with the, the, the DC films, they're all just right out there. And it's really annoying and, like, quite disturbing and distracting, because... The DC, like, their franchise did manage to make it work. The first two of the Batman films, um, Batman Begins and uh, The Dark Knight. They're not part of like, it. Sorry? They're not part of the DC extended yeah, but, universe, as they call it. Well, here's my thing. I know they're not part of it, right? But they're in the same kind of vein. They're using same characters. So if I was, you know, bringing in someone to direct, I would point to these films and go, make sure you've seen these and think about the way they approached the subject material. You don't have to do the same thing, but at least have a deep think uh, thought about it because you talked about the, the Superman has to snap his neck bit. They do the same thing in the first Batman film where it's like, oh, you have to break your code, but they do it cleverly. They actually like, you know, Batman has a brilliant line. It's like... um, I, I can't kill you, but I don't have to save you. Mm, and yeah. let's Ra's al Ghul die. It's, it's really well done. It, it's, you know, it's better it than into... comic Batman is a lot of the time. Batman, Bat, he's yeah. much, too, much more obstinate in the comics about that. So it's like, that's examples of how you do this shit with a featherlight touch, where you accomplish the same objective, you get the same subtext across. But you yeah, don't I have mean, the to, thing like... is, though, the thing is, though, like, 
you're comparing Zach fucking Snyder with uh, Christopher Nolan. With Christopher Nolan, and I mean, Zach Snyder is no Christopher Nolan. Not even he's not yeah, even in, playing the same fucking sport as Christopher Nolan, let alone in the same ballpark. It's like uh, well, I don't know, tennis versus like batting a ball on a string. Yeah. yeah. Ach, man. I don't know. I feel like the, the DC Universe, like, it could has, be what Marvel has, is. Has Zack Snyder ever done a good film? I don't know the answer to that. I don't well, know what films him. he's done. 300 was him, and I haven't seen 300. I remember liking 300 when I saw it, but that was, like, God yeah, knows how I, many it's, years it's ago. It's something I could and, easily imagine I'd revise my opinion on Yeah. I, I have a sneaking suspicion that were I to watch 300 again now, I bet it's fash as fuck. It's incredibly fash as fuck. The treatment of the film doubles down on it, to be totally honest. Like, I, I remember watching it and going, I appreciate what this does. It is enjoyable if I turn off my brain on all the things which are problematic, of which there are many. Um, but it's it's just undeniably fash. Like, it really, really badly so. At least, it, but I don't know. The thing about 300 is it is actually competently put together. Yeah, whereas Zack, the Snyder, that... Zack Snyder can be visually interesting. Mm. You, you, I'll give him that much. He but... did the... Yeah, he did Watchmen. He did the Watchmen film. Yeah, oh, yeah Watchmen. Watchmen yeah. is visually interesting, but it's a it's a fairly terrible adaptation. Yeah, it's not great. If you sit and if I... you sit and watch it with someone who hasn't read the comic, they don't have a fucking clue what's going on. It's a bad adaptation with one good idea in it, which was yeah. it's slightly like I know I'm going to catch shit from Alan Moore fans for this, and I like Alan Moore. I want to say it at the outset, but having Doctor Manhattan be the one who gets yes. blamed for the alien invasion. Yeah is just much, much better and ties everything together very beautifully and works way more than the interdimensional thing. But that's like the film's one good idea. Everything else about it just is, okay, whatever. But still, we are getting but well it off wasn't track written, with this. It wasn't written by Zack Snyder. Ah, that explains a lot. David Hayter had a hand in that, didn't he? Maybe that was much earlier. Uh, no, that sounds right to me, Like. That's so I, I I feel obliged to drag us back on course onto talking about the actual MCU uh, rather than just comics in general. I mean, if we must. If we, yeah, I suppose. So um, we actually touched on this earlier and I think it's worth going over because I'm sure some of our listeners won't know about this, but I mentioned that Killmonger and Black Panther was right and everyone just went, yes, yeah, no, and just there was general agreement. Um, should we explain to people why actually- Killmonger? Uh, before before we move on from the DC films, um, I just want to say, and I'm sure all the uh, the, D- the like furious DC fanboys online will completely agree with agree with me when I say the best DC universe film is Birds of Prey. <laughs> I haven't seen it, but I can believe it. I think that's a take we can all get behind, Jamie. I think there's not a single person on here who wouldn't say that Birds of Prey is an artistic, towering achievement, is ideologically pure. And has some of the finest, finest representation of the actual subject material that's ever been broadcast. And I, I, as such, I don't think it's appropriate for us to analyse this on this podcast. No. I think that one transcends any of our critiques we could give. If Barton Scorsese says it's a cinematic masterpiece, then it's a cinematic masterpiece. Yeah. Does it have Ewan McGregor doing an American accent? It has Ewan McGregor like running around taking bites out of the furniture. It's he is having the fucking time of his life <laughs> in that film. It's 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 amazing. It's just a really good film. Like, unironically. Yep. They should put that on the cover. Star of approval from broadcasting as Praxis. The <laughs> finest, finest of the films. 
I mean, we'll we'll start sticking that on the DVD cases, little stickers, <laughs> assuming you know DVDs and shops continue to exist. I just sorry, I just like to imagine like we're seeing everyone comes back after the Corona pandemic passes, and uh, all the DVD cases just have little ratings, and they're just attributed to Jamie. No context or anything, <laughs> just Jamie. <laughs> and it's like ah, it was all right, two stars, Jamie. <laughs> 50% of the Irishman on the Polar Express. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, we really do need to actually get back on topic, though, because as fun as it is to rag on the DC Universe, we did come here to talk about Marvel, which is part of the Disney behemoth. So we talked before, I mentioned Black Panther and how Killmonger was absolutely right. And the rest of you all kind of murmured, mm, yeah, no, I agree. But it just dawns on me, should maybe maybe we should unpack that one, because that one might be a little bit controversial to some people listening to this. Why is it controversial? Killmonger says kill Whitey. And he's an absolute I, dish. I mean, these are, these are both strong things in his, uh, you know, speaking in his defense here. But, um, you know, apparently black liberation is a topic which just it cannot be, you know, handled or approached uh, by any kind of film criticism in a meaningful or constructive way. I don't know. Well, it is, it is pretty ridiculous whether that film made a CIA agent into a fucking hero of a black nation. Yeah, that was that was yeah. a bit weird. Yeah. My um my big thing. I mean, I love Black Panther. I thought mm. it was amazing. Um, but I did to hark back to the uh, the previous culture episode we did. I um watching Black Panther in the cinema. The first time Killmonger appeared on screen, my brain went Michael B. Jordan B. Peterson, and then that was all I could fucking think for the rest of the film. And I mean, this keeps happening. I might just stop going to the fucking cinema, to be honest, because clearly my brain doesn't enjoy it. I think your brain has to develop like a defense mechanism to defend you against the subtext of the propaganda being beamed into your skull by distracting you with something else. That's got to be the explanation for it, surely. That sounds good. Let's go with that. Yeah, all right, cool. I'm now just, I'm picturing Jamie sitting down to watch like the next Marvel film and just the magic roundabout theme starts playing behind his eyes. (laughs) Stranger things have happened. God, yeah. But no, like, I don't know. Of all the cinematic universe's villains, I honestly think Killmonger's probably the one that I kind of go, yeah, hell yeah, and then I'm most disappointed with by the way it kind of pans out. Because the guy is literally a textbook example of everything wrong with the framing of all of the Marvel films. And, like, this is a guy who, his father comes from a nation that is insular, um, that refuses to engage the outside world out of fear, um, but has the technological supremacy that they could honestly raise the standard of living for so many people, if not actually throw off the shackles of imperialism entirely. They refuse to do this. His dad thinks this is bullshit, heads to America, home of some of the worst racist kind of repression you know you can find in the, the Western world as a, as a major power, and you know steals some of his home country's resources to try and create the financing necessary to bring some kind of like political organizing and uprising into America. He gets killed by the monarchy for doing this, and then they abandon his son. They just abandon his son in what is explicitly in the film described as a ghetto in the United States, right? The son grows up having no other prospects. He joins the US military, 
becomes an asset of the CIA, is used as some really dodgy missions as like at the spear point of imperialism, becomes incredibly disaffected with it, then realizes, hang on a minute, I am royalty from this technically advantaged kingdom, which is incredibly backward, which picks its leader by trial by combat, right? So all I have to do is roll back, defeat the next person in line to throne, I become leader, and then I can use the resources of this nation to enact black liberation across the world, if not liberation in general. And that is that is his entire like modus operandi. He's the, the film characterizes it as he's in it for revenge, and that makes it bad. As though his motives really matter in comparison to the political cause he's kind of backing. It's just astonishing. It's absolutely staggering. And to top it all off, uh, one of the people who's instrumental in taking him down, who's painted as hero, is a fucking CIA agent who's in there to do the right thing in all of this. And the film ends with, you know, the nation that he fought for control of deciding, well, we're going to now engage with the outside world a bit, but in a very kind of liberal kind of mm. withdrawn way, we're not going to rock the boat. Yeah, it's, it's it's a very much a sort of in-between third way approach to it, sort of the liberal romanticized liberal ideal of okay well both extremes are bad the point literally exactly equidistant between those two that's that's great the problem is it's like as a film as a vehicle of propaganda it's pretty damn good because it manages to portray the cause of black liberation as being about violent kind of you know any correction to injustice in cinema on a mass scale has to be portrayed in mainstream cinema anyway, it has to be portrayed as like this this revenge, this revanchist or kind of, you know, um, this this status-driven anger that will only lead to bloodshed. Like, it's the same thing when you saw, um, God, what was the third one? The, the Dark Knight Rises, was it? The third Batman one? Yeah. Yeah, you saw that and they basically, they clearly went, oh, Occupy Wall Street. Uh, and they made it into this, yeah, we're going to, the, the whole purpose of this is just anger and violence and guillotining, uh, you know, the rich people and getting our revenge. And none of the actual, you know, political organization or alternative or like a re proper redression, re redress of grievances through actual social justice, none of that features. And then you get Black Panther and it's like, oh, he just wants revenge on Whitey. He wants to subjugate Whitey the same way that white people have subjugated black people throughout history. It's like with Louis C.K., that joke he cracked, and this is not an endorsement of Louis C.K., um, he, he cracked a joke about how, like, if race was a subscription service, he would choose white every time. Not because whites are inherently better, but because being white is explicitly better. And at the end of the routine, he says, and, you know, the best thing is you go back to any point in time and it'll always be a seat at the table for you. Of course, if you go forward in time, then it's going to be an almighty ass kicking that we totally deserve. But until that point, we kind of, you know, and it's like, that's kind of the case. It, there's, an, there's an element of truth in this that there is some there is some equilibrium of justice has to be restored, but that doesn't automatically mean that it's going to lead to fucking, you know, actually kill whitey, guillotine all white sort of thing. Unless it goes catastrophically wrong, that's not what justice is about, and yet that's always how it's portrayed. And so I get really fucking angry when I watch Killmonger, so... At least in Dark Knight Rises, we got to see some show trials. At least in Dark Knight Rises, we had an absolutely amazing villain voice, which mm. uh, is just <laughs> it's still incomprehensible to this fucking day. What did you eat, bro? Did that work? I, I, I just made Robert noises into my... <laughs> just made noises into my coffee cup. Yeah, that was, that was very... Um... 
It was very Rob's Jordan <laughs> Peterson, that wasn't it? I'll say cut that because I know if by saying cut that, it will definitely make it into the yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry, but it will because I managed to get out there and it fucking turned it be Robson. So, <laughs> ah, Rob, if you're listening to this, we love you, we really do, right? James, you have a big grand take about Thanos, and I'd like to hear it. Who's Thanos? Thanos the anus. Thanos the anus. Is that the guy who got killed by Ant-Man flying off his ass? <laughs> That's a character out around the bend who was still being made today. I suppose I go, right, that whole, oh, you know, Endgame's going to end with Ant-Man flying up Thanos' backside <laughs> and expanding, right? That is not, that is objectively not funny on the surface. Uh, but this sheer grinding repetition, it's like a fucking Stuart Lee joke. He tells him <laughs> that joke. I was going to say that. He commits to it so fucking hard and just keeps going again and again, but it wraps back round into being like brilliant genius. I and mean, he still keeps going and it stops being funny. I mean, it somehow gets a resurgence at the end. So if you think, you know, like, I feel dirty for cracking that joke, but at the same time, fuck me. Are you 28 years old? If you consider that Thanos is the unfeeling, uncaring ability of capital to just kill whoever it likes, and Ant-Man represents small business owners. <laughs> there we go. That is, you've salvaged it. <laughs> like I asked that question at the start, and I was like, oh shit, that's not very good comedy. I just interrupted his rhythm. But it brought us this moment, so I stand by my decisions. <laughs> oh. But no, like my, my take on this is... How do, how do I even start, start this one off? So... This is a this is a take that is half serious and like half shitpost. So judge it on those terms. It is both true and ridiculous at the same time. Thanos is intentional propaganda to set up the eco-fascist response to climate change. Go on. <laughs> so to get there, we have to, like, I'm going to build off your narrative a bit here, David, actually, because it is good enough. So in Tony Stark, we have the capitalist wing, the uh, the moneyed interest wing of society defending the status quo, essentially. In Captain America, we have the kind of a patriot, you know, um, the, the return to golden times kind of figure like we talked about before. And in Thor... We essentially have white racial politics writ large, because what do all the fascists and alt-rights like to harken back to? It's Norse mythology. It's like the racial purity of bloodline. Um, like Thor himself, okay, uh, you know, what makes him worthy to wield that hammer? Because if you go back to the first Thor film, right, he obviously he fucks up after, so, you know, he's kind of played by his brother and his father says, oh, you're not, you're not fit to be an inheritor. You're not fit to receive this power, which is descending to him by bloodline because he's the son of Odin, right? And that entire first film is about bloodlines because Loki, his whole thing that fucks him off is his realization, oh, I'm not, I'm not blood descended. And so that make, that's what makes him the villain. He's of impure adopted blood, right? Um, and what ultimately restores Thor's hammer to him, it's when he does an, an act of self-sacrifice for the sake of the community, which is a heroic kind of fascist trope. It's the redemption of violence. If it's not the commission of violence, then it's the submission to it and sacrifice for a holy cause. So you have these three wings, and these three people are the main focus of the Avengers and of the final conflict. They're the three who stand up to fight Thanos at the end. And that's important staging. What makes Thanos particularly interesting as a villain is everyone and their, and their dog on the internet 
has been posting about how, well, you know, Thanos, he's he's right. Thanos has a, has a point in all of this. Because um, look at his framing. When he first appears in the Marvel films, before they really get around to it, he's just this nebulous force who's like going to do some bad shit. But when they actually come to flesh out his character, like, oh, we need a motivation for him. What's the motivation? Well, it's overpopulation. It's we don't have enough resources to go around. And clearly the solution to this that Thanos comes to is to thin the herd. It's Malthusianism, this idea that overpopulation is causing the destruction of a planet. Not economics, not social political forces, not any of the, the free wings of the modern imperialist state that are represented by Captain America as like war industry. Uh, sorry, what am I saying? Um, Iron Man as war industry, Captain America as military patriotism, and Thor as kind of revanchist kind of uh, white supremacy. Um, he's... He is essentially not engaging with the fact that they are the source of the problems that, that really define the series. He's not engaging with the fact that actually the villain exists because of the existence of the heroes, right? No. Uh, instead, it's just purely played on the terms of we don't have enough resources to go around. The solution is to just uh, just kill everyone. Or rather, bring things back into balance, right? A return to balance, which is a very kind of fascist trope. And at no point is the premise of this questioned. You know, at no point does anyone go, wait a minute, why don't you just use the Infinity Stones to, I don't know, double the resources available? Or to change the way we use those resources? Because these, remember, these Infinity Stones can supposedly reshape the entire universe. So why doesn't he snap his fingers and make everything more, you know, equitable in distribution, reduce pollution, any of this kind of shit? Doesn't do any of that shit. No, instead, the reasonable solution to shortage of resources is to just murder one out of every two people. And he is played as a sympathetic villain who like you know he's got a he's got a, a real burning conviction and belief and he's not like his idea in itself isn't wrong it's it's his methods that are really bad and ultimately when he is defeated it is a return to the status quo and so we get to go yeah you know don't worry climate collapse has not happened right we've managed to avoid that we've saved it off for another day and, uh, you know, all the these, these strong men who are coming in and saying, oh, we, we need to take drastic measures, we can think about them for now. All of this is set up, I think, for when we reach the point where we have mass climate migration and, you know, whole swaths of the world are not going to be producing anymore and we're going to have massive migration at the borders of the Western world. What do you do in that situation when you have resources being strained? And I think it's it's a setup to this thing of like going, oh, it's not in anger we're doing this, it's in sorrow. It's not that we're, you know, actually desiring the death of the masses. It's not that, you know, Thanos is a, is a villain of sorrow. He doesn't want to do these things. He just thinks it's inevitable. And this, this portrayal, if you will, this idea that, you know, Thanos was right, Thanos had a point, is kind of the most insidious propaganda because it, it deflects away from what I think are the kind of real villains in this situation. It's the three, like, it's the three forces, including Thor, which um, provide the kind of massive subtext to American imperialism. And as a kind of as a kind of consequence, we have this idea that to solve a great problem, you need a strong man. But of course, the danger is the wrong strong man will take the wrong solution at the wrong time. Instead, rather than kind of looking for some strong man to come in, snap his fingers, and literally fix everything, i.e., by killing half the people, um, surely the solution is to look at the things which cause the problem, and like to examine who these characters actually are and what kind of what premise they're founded on. And ultimately the superhero premise is this fantasy of having some 
great, strong, decisive figure taking decisive action through the, you know, I talked about myth of violence in the last one of these we did, through this clash of civilizations, this clash of ideas, this clash of violent force overwhelming all, that's what provides the purification and redemption and allows society to continue. And at present, like you've noted, David, the movie's resolution is basically a, a, a false return to the status quo, you know? Um, everything goes back to the way it was, unless you think about it for 10 minutes, then it actually falls apart really hard. But that's that's where we're at in neoliberalism. We're not yet ready for the strong man to kind of really make a, a, a major changing play. But at some point, that's going to become necessary. And what better to have in people's head than this kind of Malthusian idea of, well, you know, there's not enough to go around. Cho hard choices have to be made. The important thing is that they're made fairly. Either you have citizenship or you don't. You know, these kind of, this is the rubric and rhetoric it's going to fall back on. So yeah, that's my that's my take on like Thanos and the whole premise of the Avengers. Yeah, it's a good point about uh, returning to the status quo at the end because they actually go back in time and very carefully put it put back everything where it was when they found it uh, to make sure things are exactly as they were. Yeah, like they could have stopped nine eleven, like has been pointed out, but they didn't. Yeah, I mean, my my thing about the whole because um, there's a lot of uh, a particular kind of comic nerd um online who will tell you that thanos was right and i suspect there's a very strong overlap with the kind of comic nerd who tells you that the joker is right um, really love rorschach rorschach yeah that, sure. that kind of thing um but thanos is like unquestionably within the text of the film not right hmm. because in one of the infinity war films he says this universe is finite and that is like not true we know we know that the universe is infinite so well, his his sort of his argument that the universe is finite and therefore its resources are finite isn't true and yet it, within the framing of the film it's like they say that but we don't introduce that fact within the film they don't point out how he's wrong in a material sense and this is this is an important part of propaganda if you're establishing a narrative you don't contradict it. And the thing about propaganda that makes it so powerful is the most powerful propaganda is the stuff you don't recognise as propaganda. You don't recognise it as, oh, this is someone wants me to take a certain view as my own. Instead, they just kind of present it, usually in the forms of like a joke or entertainment or something where you you don't consciously reject it. You let your guard down and it kind of is able to kind of drip in. And I think like the Thanos narrative kind of achieves that because surfacely we say, oh, you know, Thanos is wrong and all the rest of it. But they give you his reasoning pretty clearly. And then we leave that in place. And then later, as the situation change, well, there's already people who are there. I don't actually think they're the same ones who's like, you know, who think the Joker is right. Because, um, I don't know, have you still not seen the Joker, James? No, I haven't. Like, the Joker is a class politics film. It is... Uh, it's I, don't mean, I don't mean specifically that film. I mean, like, people who just, you know, like, cheerlead the Joker because, they, you know, they think, like, we live in a society. <laughs> that, that sort of person where it's like you know oh, they, they, they mistake their own misanthropy as like virtue that kind of person so they think the world yeah. would be better off with without half the people because they don't like people bottom text okay no fair enough actually I, I can see that but it's not yeah, the only kind because like <laughs> oh god <laughs> oh, I don't know like I think for to be honest, I don't think the Thanos like crew is a perfect overlap with that. Right? I mean, I the think Thanos was right. Probably, people, no, probably not but, perfect. I think I think you're but, right when you say that the film does present Thanos. It does it does give the impression that Thanos 
is is like you know maybe using the wrong methods but it does does suggest that he's fighting for a noble cause but despite that he does still like it, within the film he does say something that is like objectively untrue and puts a lie to his entire i don't think i don't think it was particularly maybe not intentional on the part of the filmmakers but th- there is the fact that his his entire logic is faulty well, look, I'll be perfectly honest. It doesn't matter. The facts of it don't matter within the context of story because, no. like, in real life, we don't have fucking superheroes or Infinity Stones either. But it's the, it's the narrative logic that matters because people are kind of driven by narrative logic most of the time. And, like, uh, I don't know. The Thanos was right, people. Do you know who I think they're a perfect overlap with? The Empire did nothing wrong. Goldicat oh, did nothing wrong. <laughs> Oh, now that's a fucking one I've not heard. Oh, yeah. I think it's probably it's probably um, a, a very close overlap with the people who take Fight Club to be like a, oh yeah one a, to one a valid celebration of masculinity. It's like <laughs> if it, they all of these things touch on a kind of disaffection, right? They're all a disaffection. I think they, I think they all quo. I think they all touch on not fucking getting it. <laughs> well, okay, true. <laughs> Like I don't know, the Joker. The Joker stands out because there is actually a there is a critical subtext to take that can render the Joker's actions understandable, if not admirable, essentially. Whereas all the others, like they're different expressions of kind of. They're all about. So okay, this is going to piss off a lot of comic book nerds, but they're all about toxic masculinity in one way or another. I mean, I gave a, a basic articulation of the three archetypes that the three main leads of like the Avengers kind of plays to, but all of them are different facets of the, the manifestation of toxic masculinity under imperialism. You know, you've got the the very well portrayed George W. Bush rich rich kid who's like you know caught up in his own magnificence and has to face the fact that he might be wrong occasionally, as well these are weighty, meaningful kind of things, but they they matter to billionaires. You have, like, you know, Thor, who is the inheritor of, like, blood purity and power from it and all the rest of it, who's basically white privilege, right? Though they don't, you know, it's not uh, it's not text, it's subtext. And then you have Captain America, who's all about, you know, the nobility of service and deference to the state um, as it should be rather than as it is, uh, as a pretext for kind of going off reservation and all this kind of shit. It's like um, all of them are reflections of the idea of what it means to be, like, a powerful, like, representation of what, of what a man is. And curiously, like this is what's really what really puts the light to it is part of Endgame, which when I saw in the cinema, I was sitting with my partner and we just both looked at each other and we just exchanged this kind of uh-huh. And it's that bit in the film where all of all the female superheroes, oh, all the women line yeah. up together <laughs> to do this. Don't worry, we'll come in and do it. Which is the most cynical thing in the world. Because here's the thing, right? It made comic book nerds so mad. Oh, the yeah. women again. And it was done to manufacture that outrage. It, it was done for the same. Oh god! Like, I just you know, realised that's the, true, and I feel that's that's awful. Ah, uh, it it's like the Ghostbusters, like the, the new Ghostbusters film, um, is objectively shit. It's just a bad film. There's nothing good in it. It's not it's funny. Right. Oh no, I disagree. So I quite strongly. enjoyed it. Like, no, oh, I don't think it holds up at all to the originals. I but mean, what it's is way less rapey than the original. Well, okay, I'll give you that, right? But, uh, you know, you've got to take things as a product of their time to an extent. I would like to see okay, but a go- modern but, ghost... But the 1984 Ghostbusters is, like, incredibly sex-crimey. Here's the thing. The things that make the original Ghostbusters great are in spite of that, not because of it. I would like to see a modern Ghostbusters film that manages to capture the same kind of humour and premise of the original and its delivery. But the new Ghostbusters film wasn't that. No, I like I like the new Ghostbusters. I thought it was pretty funny. The ending was a bit 
a bit eh, but it was, you know, I mean, you get that with fi- any any blockbuster film that's made for children generally does tend to have a bad ending because it just they just kind of it's kind of like a bunch of flashing lights and sirens going off. I tell you what, we'll agree to disagree on this because whether or not the film itself is actually good is perhaps not germane to the point I was aiming for, which is this. We know for a fact that the distributor of the film intentionally went and put a focus in the media and a narrative on this idea that people were, were objecting to it because it was a feminist film and it was like, a, you know, all the, look at all these smelly basement nerds are kind of kicking back against it. It's like male rage personified and they totally ginned that up and they made it into a thing as a marketing tool. And uh, I don't think the film, like, I don't think it was a good film, but I have no problem with the, it being a female-focused film, with it being, like, you know, women in a central role. I don't have a problem with that being the heir to, like, some of the good ideas that were in the original Ghostbusters film. I've got no issue with that whatsoever. I've got an issue, my personal take is I don't actually think the film's funny, but I guess that's a taste thing. What is deplorable is the way they marketed it. And when I look at the um, the Endgame film with that one scene, like my, my partner, she looks around at me as well and the same thought is going through her head, which is, this is bait. It's bait for two types of people. It's bait for the very superficial kind of, you know, like feminism of the icon rather feminism of deed kind of, you know, uh, liberal. Hire like, more female guards. Yeah, exactly. If you want to see, you know, powerful women, what are they using that power to do? Doesn't matter, you know? Kamala Marvel. Those people, Kamala Marvel. But it's also bait for men who just kick back against the idea of women having any power whatsoever, and they'll make a big stink about it. And they did. And there were articles off the back of it, and it worked. And, like, that pre- creates the interesting contrast, if you will. This is, like, this is subtle, but it's there. The three men who form the, the, the trio of power on the good side of the film that everyone else kind of anchors around and acts as, to a lesser great degree, to support a comic relief to, they don't they don't need that particular staging where they do the heroic pose it's because it's implied in the imagery in the scene it doesn't cut out of context but the women characters who actually don't have that same focus and don't have that that plot centric power in the same way they have to be given that scene in a way um because they're you know kind of denied structural power and it tells you a lot about where the locus of the film is in terms of how it sees power and society and who holds prominence within it and I guess, I don't know, I, 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 to bring it all kind of around, fundamentally, I think the Marvel films, they're entertaining, they're, they're interesting. But when you dig, like you scratch the surface of them and all this horrible shit in our culture comes bubbling up. And it is a bit scary to think that in the past sort of 20 years, increasingly society has been turning towards these fantasy narratives of strong figures having big fights and these being what solves everything not on like a personal drama level but on a real like global scale that's been the the increasing focus of it and like it's always very like you go back to like the Die Hard film is totally like it's a male power fantasy of you know different kinds see I was about I was about to bring Die Hard up because one thing I've noticed over the years is that the um the hero who like stands up to terrorists or whatever has slowly sort of changed. Um, yeah. So like Die Hard, it, he, he's a cop, but he's he's just kind of like some schlub. Do you know what I mean? He's not yep. particularly like physically fit or anything like that. He just like has a, a real passion for murdering Germans. <laughs> and um, you cut forward to like say um, 
I'm going to, I'm going to get the name of it. No, I'm not. Which, which there was the two films about the white house being attacked by terrorists that came out the same. Oh, Olympus, uh, has fallen. Olympus has fallen. And white house not down. that one. The, the good one, white house down. Yeah. Oh, well, white okay. house down is like the, the good one of those two films, but the, the guy in that who is basically John McClane is former special forces, like black ops, some bullshit. And that's mm-hmm. a trend you see with a lot of like action movies where you have the one guy who was just in the wrong place at the wrong time and is called upon to save the day, but also he happens to be like the most special force guy who's ever like special to force. It's the it's the death of schlubbiness. It's no longer acceptable yeah. in society to be schlubby. But Ghostbusters, the original, they were all just fucking effectively libertarians. Like- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they yeah. were they were schlubby. They were slubby libertarian small government types who just want to make their own little business. And there were small business tyrants in the making, essentially. Yeah, and yeah. in the Reagan era, that kind just, of created a framing. They just want to be allowed to fuck around with nuclear reactors <laughs> on private property <laughs> and take horse tranquilizers on a date. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, exactly. Like the thing that the the things that made the original Ghostbusters good. And, you know, it's it really was about a kind of class politics. Is the idea that, oh, here's a focus on the little guy. And that's what kind of made them good. That's like the core of their goodness. And all the other stuff, yeah, well, you know. Um, and over time, that the whole idea of like the little guy who's in the wrong place at the wrong time ends up turning out to be like a badass hero and all the rest of it has fallen out of favor in place of the military. But you know how ages ago I said their propaganda and it's largely like there's a, there's a core of intentionality to these and I said justify it. It's the, the justification is the same reason you've seen all these, oh, you know, it's special forces kind of. It's because America did something very interesting. They repealed all the laws saying you couldn't propagandize to like Americans on American soil. They used to have laws against that. Those no longer exist. The American military and the CIA and all the other government branches can now produce propaganda for domestic consumption. And on top of that, the military now very openly funds anything that features the military as long as they get a review and a pass on the script. Yeah. So every time in the Marvel films you see, oh, look, that's an American helicopter, or those are American troops, or that is American branding on shit, like of any kind, even if it's like just the insignia of the armed forces, or whatever, anytime that features, the film was given a lot of money by the American military, but the American military got a say in how the armed forces are uh, depicted and they got a final pass on the script. Yeah. And in many ways, uh, relating to that point, in many ways, the best Marvel Cinematic Universe film is Hurt Locker. <laughs> Man, you've managed to break my brain because I can't determine whether that is the best shitpost I've heard in a while or whether that's an actually astute observation. I mean, it's. I, I genuinely don't know anymore. But Hurt Locker does feature an an alarming amount of MCU actors. I don't know that much. It also, like, again, that one, if I remember correctly, did have a bunch of military funding, and it is a fucking fantasy that's got no real relation to, like, the actual military life that's been roundly commented upon by many veterans as being garbage. And yet was held up as this kind of, you know, the liberal totem of, oh, look, it's the stress of war and what it does to the human being and all this kind of shit. I mean, yeah. I, I watched it recently. The impression I get is that, like, it, it just portrays the American armed forces as, as a fucking circus. <laughs> like, they're generally just sort of pissing around and do, not doing anything properly. At least they get that right. Like, but this, well, this is the thing. There's an element of that, obviously, in any organization. But the propaganda virtue of that is basically, you know, it's a whole malice versus incompetence thing, right? 
increasingly today, you know, the whole thing, oh, don't assume what was done in malice when it could have been done by, you know, incompetence. Um, that is increasingly used as a shield to deflect criticism. It's like, oh, it's not like we intentionally did this horrible thing. It's just that we're all a bunch of incompetent losers. Well, who the fuck knows what we're doing? That has propaganda value. Insane propaganda value. I mean, I, I, I don't know. The impression I got watching, like I say, I watched it recently, and the impression I get is not that it's, it doesn't portray the American armed forces as particularly like great. It because like the main gist is like um hawkeye is just like an adrenaline junkie and he's taking loads of unnecessary risks when he should he should be really serious about disarming bombs but instead he's just like fucking clowning around and he's allowed to get away yeah. with that because the american military is just like fucking like useless uh, the purpose, yeah, of, that, the, time the purpose it, of that though is to humanize it it's to, it's to make it more relatable to people who wouldn't yeah, normally interact like, with it in any way it's like it's to humanize it and also you got to look at it in the context it was released because this was around about the time that a whole bunch of revelations about u.s military misconduct were coming out and so you know it's the whole like the, the, you know the old saying a few bad apples spoils the batch or spoils the barrel like in america they, they cast it as oh it's just a few bad apples missing the rest of the like yeah. saying it in the same way it's like what this is going is it's going all oh, look it's forget about your you know all the structural forces that give rise to people like uh, private issue, like stacked the human pyramid in the, uh, you know, black site being run by the US military and tortured people. It's like, forget about all that. It's actually just a bunch of adrenaline junkies going off reservation because they're, you know, chasing the high and the military's too, like, incompetent to possibly be able to keep a handle on them sort of thing. That's the propaganda value. Like, all these films, in one way or another, are a dialogue with the real world that's taking place and audiences' interaction with it. So, like, honestly, I don't think Thanos would exist as a villain in the form he's in if we weren't facing a climate crisis and if we weren't needing to rehabilitate the ideas behind ecofascism latently so that later, when it comes to the fore, those are things that can be seized on. I don't think a writer sits down and actually has a thought, oh, well, he's concerned about essentially climate change. That's the metaphorical climate change is what's actually driving him I mean, and his response to this. I hate to out myself as like the worst kind of comic nerd, but it, it's very Thanos being concerned about like, uh, like the resources and overpopulation and everything is, is very, um, is very Zack Snyder's watchman being concerned about Dr. Manhattan rather than a psychic squid from space. Um, because in the comics, Thanos's motivation is he wants to kill half the people in the universe because he wants to shag death. And yeah. he thinks if he kills half the people, then death will be like really impressed. And it's that's the sort of thing where if they if they'd actually just carried that over to the film, it would be it would be fucking atrocious. And no, so I, they I, have to and and oh, it, he, why does he want to kill half the people? Because overpopulation is kind of the easy out. I don't know. I agree with every word you've said there, right? I'm not saying that it was a smoke-filled room where people sat down and were like, well, we need to shape public narrative. What are we going to do? Well, let's let's fund this film using this military budget we've got that produces a character like Thanos who, you know, puts forward the, the seeds of Malthusianism and ecofascism for people. I don't think it works like that at all. And with the beauty of markets from a you know, capitalist perspective is they let you use a much finer touch on things. What I think happened goes like this. Oh, look at this motivation for this character. This is dog shit. We can't put this in a film. People just laugh at it and it's just going to neuter any weight that it might have had. We need a believable villain. What concerns bother people right now 
oh, climate change is a bit of a thing. Yeah, okay, so let's do something with climate change. He's worried about climate change. He can't put climate change in. People will, like, that's just going to be too much of a, a hot potato. All right, well, how about we put in something about resources, resource wars? That's, like, on the periphery as well. Yeah, okay, they're running out of resources. That's as, you know, and so they come up with this idea and they, they make the film and then it gets seized on culturally to negative ends and gets promotion and gets focus that it's not necessarily going to otherwise have. It's the same way that I talked about like the cultural use of Star Wars, about how it's not that George Lucas sat down and intentionally, like, I mean, God, he's fucking incapable of it. He didn't sit down and intentionally design these totems to act as like animus projections of the, the, the discontent Americans have with being ruled by an evil empire and being complicit in that. Um, he didn't sit down and give them these outs where they could go, oh, you know, I identify with Luke Skywalker, not the evil empire. He didn't do that. But once these artifacts of culture are produced, they're intensely useful. And they end up, like, I would not be surprised if it, we find out like 50 years from now, if we're around that long, that the US, like, um, you know, propaganda services seized on elements that are present in the Marvel Cinematic Universe to stress things that they found conducive to the agendas they wanted to promote. And I don't think you can get more blatant than a major understandable villain being a Malthusian. Uh, you could be right, but I think that they've basically just gone, you know, in the comics, he wants to kill half of all life. They've gone, and that and that's a, that's a very comics, a very comic book thing, because um there's a it's it's I mean you, I, I would argue that it's possibly bad writing. Um like it's a thing. It's a thing. A problem a lot of films have. You, you know what I mean? Like, um, so like again to go back to Die Hard, the first Die Hard, if if John McClane fails in his mission to kill all the Germans, the worst the worst possible outcome is that a building falls down and Alan Rickman retires. Whereas by the by like Die Hard three or you know by die hard 3 all of new york's going to be like blown up or something and then by 4 the whole the whole of society is collapsing around them because of hackers and then you know what i mean and and nowadays you can't you can't have a, an action hero just solve a, a local problem it all there always has to be fucking nuclear weapons involved somewhere along the line because it it if you know it, it they they work off the opposite you know that principle about like one one death is a a tragedy but a, a million deaths is a statistic Said Joseph Stalin as yeah. he twirled his mustache evilly. Yeah, that's the, that. The basically the opposite of that is true when you're writing an action film. The more the the bigger the number of like casualties involved in like in a potential bad outcome, the more like action film it is. So they they've basically just gone right. He wants to kill half of everyone in the in the entire universe, and they've just worked backwards from there into what would be a motivation that fits that. It's it's the sort of thing where. Um, you know, people just think that's that's it's not a. There's a lot of people who think something isn't adequately dramatic if it if it's a personal tragedy. It has to like affect the entire world, or or universe. And you know, the bigger the numbers at risk, the the more exciting and, and better something is just by default because th those numbers are bigger. Um, and, and and it it does kind of annoy me because you you can tell stories. That work on a smaller scale and they're perfectly good stories, but people just feel the need to 
to constantly, you know what I mean? Especially in cinema, they feel the need to constantly just, you'll have something that's working perfectly well and then shock twist at the 11th hour. Or also if, if like your divorce goes through, like half the people on earth will die or something like that. You know what I mean? Just to, just to up the stakes because people, people are morons and they won't be invested unless the stakes are, are like really high. So you, you, it's probably a mix really. It's probably a mix of like, well, climate change is a hot topic right now. We'll sort of do something around that. And how do we keep killing half of all people? Because that's like that's a big stakes, and everyone likes a big stakes. Well, if you think about it, if it's you because... kill, if you the second time you kill half of people, it's actually less. So yeah, <laughs> Zeno's Thanos essentially. <laughs> I don't know. Like it, it's for it's the fundamental issue is that fascism is the enemy of the personal. It's the enemy of the individual and their emotional landscape having any relevance. Because fascism, like fascism, is ultimately rooted in materialism and in a kind of death cult. You know, in Spain under Franco, they had the rallying cry of "Viva la muerte, long live death!" Right, and it's about getting away from the individual as a person and getting to these kind of, you know, this mythologizing of the individual as being part of some great big noble struggle and noble narrative that takes place on the scale of a human race, and it's about stripping out the stakes of a, a single individual life. So, like, you know, the drama of, like, a divorce or the drama of, like, you know, the parents' love for a child and all of that, all this stuff you can totally build stories around. But from the fascist perspective, for it to have meaning, it has to be a culture-threatening, you know, a, a war on that such a such a grand scale um, that it becomes kind of an abstract. And coincidentally, this works quite well for action cinema because if it's too personal, then, you know, people will be a, a bit too invested in the wrong ways. They want to be able to kind of signal, oh, look, this would be a bad thing, but not have people so invested and that they start to feel it's a bit emotionally real because we need to maintain that emotional distance to be able to do the violence. Like if you did any of the Avengers action scenes, and there's actually a video online I saw that did this. Um, you do any Avengers action scenes, but you put in real gore, real like, oh, he just smacked that guy into the wall, He's like his. He's lying on the ground, gasping. His chest is impacted, kind of thing, you know. Or like it's just lights out, and Captain America's murdering people left, right, and center with sprays of blood and all this kind of shit. It totally destroys the tone. It totally reveals it for what it is. And so, in the same way, you can't have the methodical murder of like a small like number of people in a realistic kind of way. It has to be this caricatured kind of blown up version for people to maintain their psychic distance from it. Well, that was a fucking downer of a note to end on, wasn't it? You're just too clever for this podcast is the problem. <laughs> you, 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 you spout all this like stuff and, and then none of us like know what to say to it because you're just smarter than everyone I'll else. I'll try. I'll try. I'm, I'm... My, my, my response to what you've just said will be bottom text. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Like, if anything, I am an exercise. Like, I called myself Captain Explanatory at the beginning of this. I am an exercise <laughs> in how you can fill a lot of silence with a lot of words and make it sound like you know what you're talking about. Yeah, full of full of sound and fury, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, signifying nothing. Do you want to know something weird? Just to call back to something quite quite a while ago now. Um, you, keep, you referred a couple of times to uh, Kamala Marvel. Uh, yeah. You might be aware that Captain Marvel only relatively recently in comics ascended to that title previously Ms. Marvel which was problematic also the fact that you wore quite tight leotards um, but that Ms. Marvel title has subsequently been taken up by uh, a young uh, Muslim character one of the first Muslim superheroes obviously quite underrepresented and her name is Kamala Khan 
fucking life of heaven shit in real yep. time now. It's, it's, it's unfolding as the podcast is going on. Oh, Christ. I, I, I just thought I should say it before someone writes in, assuming, I mean, we have like eight listeners, but you know, someone might write in. That, I mean, if you're going to write in at Wizard Cubes is the official uh, yeah, well, account of the podcast, the if you have channel. observations. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah, if, if, oh, you want to, if you want to be told to fuck off, just direct everything to me. <laughs> Especially anyone, anyone who's mad about any of my my film opinions tonight, feel free to at me on Twitter. <laughs> if if you think that like you know the DC films are actually good or that like you know the the Ghostbusters was bad or anything like that, like just fucking you can queue around the block and I'll get to you one at a time. <laughs> Please do. It's the only reason they volunteered for this episode. <laughs> I'll I'll step aside and let the others message you first, Jamie. Jamie, before I take up the Ghostbusters one again. <laughs> Oh, I think we should probably call so, it there then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was I was gonna say, so uh so what have we learned? Um Yeah that. Well Captain America did nine eleven. Yep. Uh, and I think that's a good enough point to end it on as any. Yeah. So um look forward to the next cultural episode where we'll examine how in Star Trek the Prime Directive is the zenith of liberal policy. <laughs> Sounds good. Actually, for real, um, you know, on the next episode, uh, we have a special guest. So next episode, Alice from Trash Future will be joining us to talk about the Glaswegian response to coronavirus and its mm. effects on the local community. But until we come crashing back into the world as it is, uh, this was Podcasting as Praxis. I'm James. I was joined by Jamie, David and Xander. And I guess we'll, we'll see you all back in the weird, weird world of quarantine. Catch you soon. Yep, nice one. See you later.